You are listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Emily Ashenfelter. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's December 10th. Russian troops are building up near the Ukrainian border and in Crimea. Leaders in the Kremlin have questioned the legitimacy of Ukraine's independence falsely accused Ukraine of provocations, and warned Western powers against crossing so-called red lines that are not well-defined. Moscow has also called up tens of thousands of reservists on a scale unprecedented in the post-Soviet era. As a result, concerns are rising in Washington and Kyiv that Russian President Vladimir Putin could soon launch an attack. So what could happen if he did? According to RAND researchers William Courtney and Peter Wilson, if Russia does invade Ukraine, then it would likely employ massive cyber and electronic warfare tools and long-range precision-guided munitions. The aim would be to create shock and awe to overwhelm Ukraine's defenses or its will to fight. But as Courtney and Wilson note, this was wishful thinking by the Soviet Union early in its war in Afghanistan. It was also part of America's misguided calculus early in the Iraq war. If Ukraine does not break, then Russia could pay a high price. For one thing, Ukrainian defenders have certain geographic advantages. Their military has also been hardened by seven years of fighting in eastern Ukraine. And as for the U.S. and its NATO allies, it's possible that they could react to a Russian invasion in a way that goes well beyond their response to Russia's previous assault on Ukraine in 2014. A likely Western response may be expanded training and equipping of Ukrainian forces, plus significant financial and economic sanctions on Russia. There are other options too. Ukrainians may be unable to defeat a large-scale invasion by Russia, the researchers concede, but they could inflict high casualties. That's a sensitive issue in Russia. And occupying Russian forces might be stretched thin and vulnerable to insurgents who stay behind. Overall, Courtney and Wilson say that the U.S., its NATO allies, and Ukraine itself could impose immediate and painful costs on any Russian invaders. And it might not end there either. For many years after an invasion, Russia could face reinforced NATO power. Ukraine isn't the only spot around the globe where concerns are growing about a possible incursion by a U.S. adversary. I'm talking, of course, about Taiwan and China. Multiple war games conducted last year suggest that the U.S. military may struggle to defend Taiwan from a Chinese invasion. And in the one simulation in which the U.S. was successful... It relied on critical military and intelligence contributions from Taiwan, but this scenario assumed an optimal Taiwanese strategy that employs technology that does not yet exist. As the U.S. prepares to deter China from attacking Taiwan and to defend it from an attack, Rand's Raymond Guo says that policymakers should ask why Taiwan has chosen a different defense strategy than the strategy that the U.S. wants. One major reason is the U.S. itself, he says. Washington's policy of strategic ambiguity, in which it's deliberately vague about how and whether the U.S. would defend Taiwan, does not provide Taipei with a clear security commitment. 
even as U.S. intervention is essential to any effective defense against China. That's why Taiwan's new strategy is not the one I mentioned earlier that might contribute to a successful outcome. Rather, it is a strategy designed to maximize the likelihood of U.S. intervention. According to Guo, Washington can convince Taipei to shift gears by addressing Taiwan's fears of abandonment by switching from ambiguity to clarity. Until that issue is resolved, Guo says, Taiwan will always concentrate on the question of whether the U.S. will show up to the fight, rather than how the U.S. and Taiwan can best fight together. One of the most consequential human responses to climate change is, and will continue to be, the mass movement of people. Estimates of just how many climate migrants we could see in the coming decades vary widely. They range from tens of millions of people displaced by 2050, all the way to 1 billion people. A new RAND paper explores this emerging challenge and reviews how six countries are developing policies to respond to climate migration and mobility. There's a lot to dig into, and I encourage you to read the whole paper at RAND.org, but I'll highlight just two of the author's conclusions. The first is that there's no recipe for climate mobility policy. And in the coming decades, climate migration may not just be an isolated policy problem. Rather, it could be an overarching condition of our human existence, one that is intertwined with every aspect of public policy. And the second conclusion? The physical effects of climate change may make some amount of human migration necessary, the authors write. But how much mass movement occurs, and whether it leads to mass suffering, are, to a large extent, up to policymakers. Okay, today we've covered the specter of two major military conflicts and mass migration from climate change. So let's end this episode with some cautious optimism about an unlikely topic, the pandemic. The emergence of the Omicron variant is just the most recent development to highlight the ongoing threat of COVID-19. And there's been significant concern for a long time about vaccine nationalism, the idea that countries, typically wealthier countries, won't want to share vaccines with other countries. RAND researchers wanted to understand to what extent these views are held by the American public. So they surveyed more than 1,700 Americans in September as the Delta variant was still peaking in the U.S., More than two-thirds of respondents strongly or somewhat agreed with the idea that the U.S. should send extra vaccines to other countries. And nearly 60% of Americans agreed that not helping to fight the spread of COVID-19 in other countries would put the U.S. at risk. Support for global strategies was much higher among those who reported receiving at least one shot of any COVID-19 vaccine. We also observed strong differences by income, with higher-income respondents being more likely to support global strategies. There were also strong differences by education. Respondents with higher levels of education were generally more likely to support global strategies. Overall, American support for sharing vaccines was high, even before Omicron. So, why is this cause for cautious optimism? Well, many findings about the American mindset during the pandemic, including our own findings here at RAND, have underscored a sense of what researchers call health individualism. 
But in this case, our findings suggest a deeper understanding of the benefits of acting on a global level, and perhaps even a growing recognition that Americans won't really be on a path to recovery until the U.S. gets proactive and addresses the pandemic beyond its borders. RAN is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered in this episode, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We'll see you next week.